This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are gonna talk about it all. Dr. Bradford Coquelet is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas. His work focuses on Eastern philosophy, the philosophy of religion, and applied ethics. In this podcast, Brad returns to finish discussing Eastern ethical traditions, how they compare with one another, and how they contrast with Western ethical traditions. Hi, everyone. I am here with Brad Coquelet again for round two. Uh, Last time we talked about comparing ethics of the East and West, and I kind of got us off of track, and we never really got to talk about what psychologists can learn from Eastern ethics. Um, And for, often I like to start the podcast by hearing about researchers' backgrounds, but you're just going to have to go and find Brad's other podcast to hear about his background. We are going to start by talking about psychology's backgrounds broadly and the relationship between psychology and philosophy, starting with Kohlberg. Um, Brad was telling me that from his perspective, it's really interesting how philosophers sort of picked up on Kohlberg and engaged with him and then sort of um, stopped tracking moral psych for a while. So Brad, could you just kind of repeat some of what you told me and set the backdrop for like why moral psychology is wed, where where moral psychology's ethical roots seem to be coming from primarily and um, and then we'll move into kind of contrasting that with Eastern ethics. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me back, Amber. It's fun to keep talking. Um, yeah, so the thing about uh, Kohlberg that I was mentioning to you, one thing is that really interesting is so Lawrence Kohlberg is this influential, I guess, sort of founder of moral psychology. In psychology, he also published in top philosophy journals, like Journal of Philosophy, and people were debating with him, philosophers. So Owen Flanagan, who he did an interview with, uh, he was, you know, in, the, in there debating with him. And um, then another thing about Kohlberg is when you kind of look at his, he has a theory of moral stages uh, that emphasize judgment, uh, especially about moral dilemmas. But he, one thing that's interesting, if you look at his stages, is he has this kind of high stage that he doesn't think kind of your average person necessarily gets to. And so he has sort of built into his psychological theory of moral development, what I, you could think of as sort of like a moral ideal. And it's focused on justice, um, but uh, it also is, looks like it's very heavily influenced by Immanuel Kant and uh, Kant influenced philosophers like John Rawls, who I think uh, Kohlberg uh, was hanging out with, or at least definitely has a connection to. And so then in philosophy, after Kohlberg created his uh, psychological theory of moral development leading up to this top stage, both John Rawls, who's one of the very most influential moral philosophers in the last uh, 100 years or so, and then Jürgen Habermas, who's another kind of world historical philosophic figure, they both appealed to Kohlberg in order to explain 
basically moral psychological development. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, and then and Habermas and Rawls are both very Kantian uh, influenced moral philosophers. And so, uh, but I think kind of after that uh, period where these two kind of huge influential figures did appeal to Kohlberg, um, one thing that happened is people criticized Kohlberg or the appeal to Kohlberg in philosophy. Um, and then people like Owen Flanagan criticized Kohlberg, I think, uh, sort of from a more psychological point of view. And that was connected to, in philosophy, a kind of pushback against certain Kantian uh, views. Um, but for whatever reason, philosophers, I think at that point, they maybe just stopped reading psychology or didn't have connections with psychologists. And they didn't, as a whole, tend to talk much about psychology. And I think part of the reason is they thought um, to build a good ethical theory or moral theory telling us what's morally right and wrong and what we ought to do and ought not to do, they didn't think psychology was relevant to that. Hmm. Um, and so it was later on that uh, people like Owen Flanagan and then uh, this guy Larry Blum and David Wong, uh, I think they had a reading group in Boston at some point, and then they went on in their careers to kind of talk more about moral psychology. Uh, and several of them talked about the Carol Gilligan uh, response to Kohlberg. Mm. But it's not until much more recently that I think more people have started looking at a lot of the other traditions you've talked about in moral psychology and some of your other interviews. So that's sort of uh, a kind of basic setup. Um, I don't know if there are things to talk about that. Well, I'm curious, where, so where did Alistair McIntyre's work come in in all of this? Um, like, was he kind of the mover and shaker back to virtue ethics, or had that been going on all along in philosophy? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, sort of the story is uh, there were a lot of these Kant-influenced people, and, you know, Walls was sort of looms large, uh, at least in the way we tell the story now, and um, there were also utilitarians around, but... Um, there is a movement criticizing kind of both utilitarianism and Kantianism, and it was connected to people thinking maybe there's something kind of messed up with our current society and our, our, our moral debates, and there's something kind of wrongheaded both in the real world and also in philosophy, and maybe we need to go back and look at ancient Greece uh, and sort of the Aristotelian tradition to get an alternative that's better philosophically and maybe also actual change our, the way we live our lives and structure our institutions and things. Um, and so McIntyre was a huge figure um, in that movement that people call the virtue ethic movement. And so um, this woman, Elizabeth Anscombe, wrote a really influential early article. And then there are other... Uh, people like Michael Stocker and Michael Sloden. So there's a sort of movement of people that get associated with this term virtue ethics. And it's kind of saying we have to find some kind of new approach. And it's kind of has, it's kind of a grab bag where you, it's not clear there's like one thing they all share, but one thing they seem to all share is thinking these other ways of doing things are wrong. <laughs> we have to go a different yeah. way. Um, yeah. But, and so McIntyre is one of the really hugely influential people um, okay. in that movement. And he was saying, let's go back to 
um, Aristotle. You could think there's another group that kind of are saying, let's look at care, not Aristotle. They, they like Carol Gilligan's stuff, and then they might also like David Hume. Um, so that's sort of like one way you could think about it is there's sort of two camps here. One group saying, let's go to Aristotle. The other group is sort of saying, let's go to David Hume. Um, yeah. So uh, do you have a sense for whether virtue ethics in, in psychology was influenced by that movement in philosophy or vice versa? Like what, what was the directionality on that? That's a good question. I mean, my sense is that a lot of the people, so one thing about psychology I've noticed is that at least my perception, and I'd be interested to hear what you, you know more, you've interviewed all these people and have a better education in psychology than I certainly do. And one thing I've noticed is that one place people talk about uh, virtue and character and Aristotle is uh, some of those people sort of work on maybe personality psychology or uh, positive psychology. They might be interested in sort of uh, going beyond just sort of feel good happiness and talk about some more robust idea of meaning or flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some people coming at it that way. Um, and then I noticed there are some people in moral, who work on moral psychology, um, like Darsha uh, Navarra is saying, you know, who kind of seem like they, uh, like to talk about virtue and practical wisdom and maybe Aristotle a little. Um, yeah. And my sense is that those people, um, a lot of them seem to have read McIntyre and maybe Charles Taylor and yeah. uh, maybe Taylor like Gautamer. some of them have like, <laughs> some of them were introduced by people who worked at hermeneutics who may have read yes. like Gautamer. Yes. And so there's this sort of uh, coming back, you know, kind of inspiring some of the movement uh, is, is the, it, are these philosophers, um, but they aren't really maybe reading or in dialogue with kind of the, the more recent uh, virtue ethics people in philosophy. But, it, but I get the sense there was this kind of like, you know, big name early waves that influenced psychology. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's my guess. Yeah, I mean, I certainly have the sense, like, that it seems to me the the psychologists who are operating out of virtue ethics usually either have a training in philosophy, or are coming at, or or are coming from like a theoretical and philosophical psychology kind of tradition. Um, mm -hmm. So, I, like for instance, positive psychologists, I think they often kind of appeal to Aristotle. I don't know how deep that knowledge really goes in, in terms of like, sometimes it's kind of tacky. If you look at the papers, it doesn't, it doesn't really jive with Aristotelian tradition so much as just sharing the word virtue. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, my, my take, I think sort of matches yours, except that I'm not familiar with probably the more recent movements in philosophy regarding virtue ethics. So mm. Um, well, let's, let's, uh, jump from here into, um, comparing, 
comparing Western virtue ethics traditions and Kantian traditions and things like that with Confucianism, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. this is something we didn't we didn't get to do last time. So let's make sure to do it this time. Uh, yeah. So you, it, it seems to me you you think that there are some ways that psychologists and philosophers could benefit from um, studying or adopting Confucian kind of ethics. Could you remind me, just generally speaking, what can, what the ethical philosophy of Confucianism in a broad brush stroke sense is? Mm. Yeah, so, um, so a couple of things, I guess, so Confucianism starts out with Confucius and then there's, it's like any other uh, tradition where there's tons of people uh, yeah. with differing views, but some of the main things that um, the focus is, uh, there's a kind of an idea that you play different roles in your society or you can uh, play different roles in your society. And what ethical theory and, and de- ethical development is about is uh, developing a set of kind of psychological dispositions or traits or um, something like that that will enable you to fulfill these various roles in a, in a good or maybe admirable kind of way. So, um, so one thing is that uh, Confucius was trying to, in a lot of Confucians, they were trying to influence uh, the, the rulers in their day. And so one thing they emphasized was they said, uh, in order to be a good ruler, you have to be a good person. And if you want to know what someone is, if there's a good person, you need to look at, are they a good parent? Are they a good son? Are they a good, uh, like if they're playing some intermediary role in a political organization, are they, you know, a good underling or a good boss? We might say now. And so mm-hmm. they were interested in um, kind of familiar relationships, friendships, and then hierarchical relationships that we get in all kinds of domains in society. And they, and so their idea of the, the focus, if you're trying to measure moral development, is you want to kind of look at what's leading people to fulfill these roles in a good or bad way. Hmm. Um, and then, so I'd say in addition to that, then they're kind of one big emphasis of their tradition is that um, social kind of structures and sociological structures have a huge influence on whether we are capable of developing good psychological characteristics or not. So a lot of times it gets translated as ritual, but it's this broad notion um, where uh, kind of like social norms and maybe include stuff we would think of as etiquette, but it would also include um, like one example that this Confucian scholar gives is like in some societies, if you go somewhere and you want to make friends, there's a way you make friends. And so you make friends by, you start to sort of disclose a little bit more personal information. And, but if you, if you puke out all your personal problems too quickly, that's not (laughs) a way to make friends, but there might be some cultures, you know, where I would just guess like, you know, I don't know, Northern Germany, maybe, maybe there are cultures where people are more reserved. And so what in the U S would be a totally normal way to make friend you'd be the equivalent of puking out your problems. It's another culture. And (laughs) so a lot of what it is to be a good friend or a good parent and stuff, they think, um, you know, that might vary culture to culture, but there might be good and bad ways to set this up culturally. 
so so that's a, so they have these thing with roles and they have this stuff about kind of social norms uh need to be good or bad and so one thing confucius thought was he thought his society had a lot of problems at his time because the social norms had gotten kind of crappy mm. um and so he thought look uh we need to try to follow the good social norms uh, ourselves become better people and then we need to try to get everybody to change the social norms so that we collectively can become better people um so yeah. how i'm i'm curious how Confucius would have thought about where these norms come from and like which ones are are good and bad because I, mm -hmm. I I I sort of had this impression that it was like the goodness was about right fit to the norm but if there's like this broader mm -hmm. thing outside of the norm that dictates whether or not you should find the right fit for that norm it seems mm -hmm. to imply that there's something beyond um sort of the the role um yeah. Or, or tr uh, what was the ritual? Um, yeah, no, I mean, and so one thing is, I think that's uh, contested in the Confucians. Like one of the big questions the Confucians had was, what, what, how do we pick out the good norms from the bad ones? Um, what makes them good or bad? Yeah. And I think one thing is that um, as the tradition went on, people disagreed about that. And so at least one kind of general way of going is some people thought, there was sort of a metaphysical fact out there about what the best set of norms would look like. And they thought of maybe this has to do with the norms that are kind of like naturally good or better. Um, so they had a kind of strong metaphysical moral realism about there's this pattern uh, and if things follow the pattern, then they're closer to being good. And if the norms are sort of deviating from the pattern, uh, they're less good. And they thought moral development was about you, you kind of grasping what it would take to instantiate good patterns in your interactions with other people and in your society. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had a story about selfish desires distort your capacity to grasp mm -hmm. the, the, the good way for things to be. And so moral development partially is about uh, people changing their psychology so they can pick up on harmonious, good patterns. Um, so that's one, one strain of the tradition kind of, you could think of it as like, it's sort of this fact about kind of broadly harmonious, good patterns. And then there's a question about how do you, you know, know, know what those are and, and, and get them to, realize them in your, in your life. And then but there's another part of tradition I think that is a little more like, um, well, there's some view of like what it is to have good human relationships and maybe to have sort of like a good human life that involves having valuable relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. And the good patterns are the ones that enable us to flourish together, you know, into the people we're with now and through our connections to the past. And so some kind of idea of like human well-being uh, that maybe involves relational well-being, that would be the thing that determines which patterns okay. are good or bad. Okay. Um, so, so I think those are two of the main uh, competing stories that I see in, that, in their tradition. Yeah. Okay, so now in this, um, 
list you sent me, um, Brad has sort of a list of the cool things about Confucianism. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he'll let me link to it in the description on the podcast. But um, sure. <laughs> anyway, in this list, you had mentioned that Aristotelian traditions seem to focus on the need for wisdom and rationality and knowing goods and Humean traditions seem to focus on compassion and love, but not wisdom. Um, so, and then you also mentioned, okay, it seems like Confucians get the importance of both of those things. Could you expand on that and tell me more about that? Yeah. So partially this is, you know, uh, there are sort of philosophers that are inspired by these historical figures, Aristotle and Hume, but you can also just see their sort of debating camps in contemporary philosophy. So um, one way is just if you look at, if you were to look up different people, philosophers writing theories of virtue. So it's like, what, what are good character traits that make someone admirable and morally good? Um, there are some people who emphasize uh, practical knowledge and wisdom and they're inspired usually by Aristotle. And so one way to think about this is um, like I mentioned at the end of the last podcast, their view would be to have practical knowledge, you have to make correct judgments, but then you also need to have emotions that track the correct judgments. Right. Um, so if you're, you know, if you realize uh, social status is commonly overvalued in our society, um, you might recognize like if you're uh, you know, if you don't win some competition at your work or something, you know, you don't get the promotion, you might judge, well, that's, you know, that's not good for me, but it's not really a big deal. Uh, it's not, you know, winning the be number one, as long as the person who won actually deserved to win. Uh, mm -hmm. It's okay. Um, but then you might emotionally get, you know, way more upset. And so you might think your emotions are reacting as if this is like, you know, great injustice. Like maybe you find yourself being really angry and sort of like imagining getting revenge on the person. You think emotional responses would make sense if the person unjustly got ahead of you. Um, and so the Aristotelians think you should make correct judgments like who deserved to win were you did you unjustly not get the promotion or did you just you know bummer you didn't get it so you have to make the correct judgments and then you need to have emotions in line with that um so that's the kind of Aristotelian idea of practical wisdom is you make correct judgments all over the place um and then your emotions are in line yeah um so it's a demanding ideal uh but what Aristotle never you know there is some mention of something that you could we could bring up but basically Aristotle, it is not a virtue of Aristotle's on his list or in his theory, uh, feeling compassion and sympathy for other people or empathizing with other people. So sort of, you know, perspective taking mm -hmm. in the other, what's it like from the other person's point of view? Yeah. That is not part of Aristotelian virtue. Why um, do you think that is? Well, like, that's a good question. I, um, yeah. <laughs> Like, I mean, in, in general, right, like there, like humility wasn't a virtue and things like that didn't seem to be considered a virtue. It does seem like Aristotle has sort of this bizarre list of what he cared about. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway. All right. Well, if, there, yeah. if there's no I mean, part of the explanation, there might I mean, part of the explanation could be, if you think about who Aristotle was, he was a guy living in this city state 
uh, in Greece, and he's giving his ethics lectures to all these basically uh, property-owning people who are going to take over and rule the city. Mm-hmm. And so he's asking, when he's asking um, what, it, what are the virtues, uh, he's either thinking you should, the answer is you should just become like kind of like him, like a philosopher or scientist and contemplate eternal truths because that's the life that's closest to being a god. Um, <laughs> and so that's really like, obviously the gods are, you know, the closer you get to imitating them, the more excellent your life is and the excellent of a person you are. And his number two option is you're the person with practical wisdom and knowledge. And I think you might be kind of thinking like, what, what's, what excellences do you need to be like a really great politician? And that's where he's thinking, um, you know, you need to make these judgments about justice and have your emotions in line and uh, these other, you know, other goods that do matter, but it's about, you know, you try to get the distribution of goods in the society uh, that are fitting and will lead to good results. And he's just not thinking <laughs> you need to have empathy uh, or sympathy. So I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. And so. <laughs> You're like the only right. person I've talked to that I can like hear the critical pieces of Aristotle coming through. Like it sounds yeah. like you're not a big fan. Well, I love Aristotle. I mean, uh, so part of the reason I originally got into all this virtue stuff is I like, the thing I like about Aristotle is that he says we should aim ideally to have to integrate our correct judgments about what matters with our emotions. Right, right. And I think, and then, you know, contemporary people inspired by Aristotle, they're all going to say, well, look, Aristotle may not have had all the relevant goods or capacities, so maybe we want to add on compassion and you can see how that kind of happened when like Christianity took up Aristotle. So, but I'm yeah. just a fan of like, let's be honest about, you know, they're inspiring things about Aristotle's work. And then there are these reasons that we just like, seems like his theory is totally inadequate uh, for us today. Doesn't mean you can't, you know, update it and improve it and build on it. But you just, I, yeah, I guess I like to be like, let's just, let's be honest about the, the shortcomings. Right. Um, right. So I agree. I think yeah. it's cool. Um, the Aristotelian piece about aligning sort of judgments with, with emotions, desires. It's interesting though, because that's like the one piece that it seems like doesn't jive with a lot of people that I talk to that maybe aren't as interested in um, moral philosophy and stuff like that. Like um, I I have a friend out here and he was kind of insisting like, no, you have to kind of feel the burn on these moral things or else it just doesn't show as much moral strength and that somehow like moral strength Mm -hmm. is this really important thing. So obviously going back to a very like duty, a Kantian duty ethics kind of appeal And I'm wondering, like, do you have a sense for, and I'm sorry, I keep asking these questions that are maybe outside of the scope of philosophy specifically, but do you have a sense for how common that is globally and also like historically speaking? Um, Mm -hmm. Because I know like when we, when we spoke last time, you were telling me, okay, well, like morality as we currently think about it hasn't always been recognized as distinct from other non-moral kind of character traits. Um, mm-hmm. So it seems like it has to be sometime after that point, And maybe it mm-hmm. isn't until Kant comes around. I don't know. Anyway. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, Kant is known for the idea that, uh, like the paradigm case where you're showing that you have what he calls moral worth um, is the action where you're doing it because it's your duty. And so he thinks the case where it's most clear that you're doing something because it's duty, it's, it's your duty is the case where you don't really want to do it or whatever. So it's like, you know, he thinks you, your, your actions could have moral worth and what you're doing could be a morally good thing. Uh, even if you do want to do it and your and, and your emotions align, but he thinks it's not really that clear because we can ask sort of, you know, well, wait, if you want to do this thing and you also know it's your duty, how do you really know what's motivating you here? Is it your duty or are you doing it because you want? We can't tell. Um, and it's possible you're motivated by your duty, but it's just we're kind of, you know, he thinks our own motivations are very inscrutable. We can't tell what they are. And so he thinks the case where you where you see people that you can be really confident they're morally good mm-hmm. are the cases where they feel the burn. Um, yeah. And you know that's uh, he thinks that uh, to be morally good and virtuous. Uh, I mean, which he has a theory of virtue. But we only did it roughly uh, to be morally good. You have to be motivated by duty. So that's just his. Uh, his view is this duty center and it kind of goes with the idea that, yeah, you would, you would be like, well, I can really tell someone's moral fiber in the moment where they're doing the right thing, even though they feel the burn. Um, and that's definitely, you know, that's the Kantian sort of idea. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I definitely would suspect uh, that may be connected to certain Christian Protestant currents uh, in Western culture, but that's totally speculative. Um, and I don't think anyone studied this. And I'd love to have someone do like a study of what people's intuitions are cross cultural on that. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Now I'm going to go look it up when we're done. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, um, go ahead. Well, so I was going to say, should we go back to like? Yeah. Let's go back to different. And yes. Then, yeah. Yes. So. So Aristotle's got this, like, you know, your emotions in line, right? And then that's not a feature of Kant. And then Hume, uh, he doesn't just talk about this, but he's really, a lot of people have been inspired. So especially people say, like Lawrence Kohlberg, to his study, uh, he mostly focused on young men. He was really interested in, are they just? Uh, are, they, are they making correct judgments? And so then his student, Carol Gilligan, criticized his theory and when she did studies of women especially who are facing difficult decisions involving abortion uh, she emphasized that for them care was associated with being moral and that idea also was taken up in philosophy and a lot of the people who like that idea that care is very central to morality um, are inspired by David Hume who's this Scottish philosopher so that's there's sort of this connection and there's a movement called care ethics where people say care or other people have focused on empathy, sympathy, that these are really the heart of what it is to be a morally virtuous person. And uh, so there's this philosopher, Julia Driver, her book uh, called Uneasy Virtue. She explicitly is like, you don't need knowledge. You don't need wisdom. You don't need the stuff that Aristotle was talking about. Um, you just need to have, you just have to care about the good, 
people's well-being and like want other people to be, you know, you have to be upset when their well-being is going down and uh, you need to be a caring person. And so that's roughly uh, this idea is that you kind of get uh, the Aristotle people emphasize rationality and judgment combined with emotion. The Hume people say you don't need rationality and judgment at all. It's not that cognitive. What you need is care and empathy and compassion. So there's this kind of, it's rationalist or kind of cognitive based in Aristotle um, in a way that the people who like the other moral philosophers think, no, no, virtue is really more about just your emotions and your caring. Um, and so you kind of, if you're interested in a virtue based approach, you can feel this, like there are these teams uh, historically, but also contemporarily, there's like the pro sentimental care people. And then there's like the rationality people. And you can sort of be feel like you have to pick mm. uh, which way, which way do you think about um, virtue? And so that's, that's the first point. And the second point, so maybe we could, if you have quite, we could talk about that. And then my thought is the Confucians kind of give you a way you can sort of combine both. Yeah. I want to um, hear about that. Let's, Let's yeah. uh, jump to Confucians. Yeah, and so um, one thing about the people who emphasize compassion and love and empathy, so um, like one of the main people more recently is this guy, Michael Sloat, who's one of who's my old colleague, and he's got an amazing, really uh, super impressive moral theory that's evolved over time. Um, I mean, he's just he's got like a complete moral theory. Uh, and... He, you know, he emphasizes empathy a lot. And so he draws on some psychologists like Martin Hoffman and other, other psychologists um, emphasizing compassion's role and empathy's role in moral development and really doesn't want to have a lot of cognitive judgment involved. So, but if you look at the Confucians, one thing that's interesting is they, they, they focus a lot on the golden rule. Mm. And so they say, if you want to know how to be a good, uh, interact with your family member in a good way. Um, one thing you should think about is, uh, you should think about what you would want if you were in your kid's place. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, not all Confucians, but one thing I think is interesting about it, when you look at the tradition developing, it looks like part of that involves you trying to imagine yourself being a very different person. Uh, who's in a very different situation than you. And you don't want to just go with how you imagine you would react if you were in that situation. You have to think about what will be the appropriate way to react. Mm -hmm. So you kind of do involve this perspective taking in other people's points of view, which is connected to empathy, but then there's a cognitive kind of set of judgments you make about that. So one way I think about that is like, I could be like, if I don't, if I go on another trip, I have to think about like, how would I feel if I was in my kids, my, my seven-year-old shoes, I go on the second trip this month. Um, so then first I can imagine what they might feel. And then I have to think about, um, well, being an adult now, if I imagine what would be the kind of like complaints or objections my kid might lodge, uh, I have to import a lot of cognitive material when I'm trying to do that. So I don't just go kind of like think emotionally, how are, how are they going to react in terms of their emotional states? I have to sort of reconstruct 
an argument about whether this is a good thing to do or not from the perspective of this other person. Um, so in that way, you're, you got the kind of like caring about other people and their emotional reactions, uh, but then you go beyond that and you have to bring in kind of rationality and cognition and judgment to figure out uh, whether it's acceptable from their point of view or not. Um, so that's the thing. one thing I like about, uh, I think, these Confucians. They wanted to make, they want us to be more compassionate and loving in terms of our emotional responsiveness, but then they think uh, that sort of like tells you where there's stuff you need to initially worry about morally, and then you have to go the next step and sort of rationally analyze what the best thing to do is. So wouldn't, um, wouldn't Aristotelians and, and Hume's tradition and everything, wouldn't they kind of say, well, we have that baked in anyway, because you can't be wise if you're not, if you're not taking the particular context of emotional sensitivities and, and things like that into mm -hmm. account in the first place? Um, well, I mean, so there's a couple interesting things. So one thing is, um, like, at least Aristotle and then a lot of contemporary Aristotelians, um, they don't really, it's hard to see how they, they don't really have this built into as part of their theory. So like they might have a concept like justice. So they could say, um, did you get your fair share? Did you get like, so if you're trying to decide um, how you're going to distribute, you know, birthday cake at a kid's birthday party, and if one kid starts to grab like their third piece and you're gonna run out and the kid hasn't had any yet, you might be like, nope, you know, we got, you can't have another piece because Johnny needs a piece. Um, so you're concerned with like a just distribution. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need to be responsive to different people, what they deserve. Um, but it's not clear that you need to imagine what things are like from that person's point of view and what they would, uh, you don't have to have necessarily be responding to their emotional hmm. states. So that, so it's true that like Aristotle in principle wants you to be responsive to like what they deserve, but in terms of the psychological access to um, that, knowing what other people uh, deserve or need, it's not, he doesn't really, um, I mean, there's a little, Part where he talks about sympathy a little bit, but it doesn't like in the in the Confucian picture. This is like the central uh, thread that unifies the different capacities you need and all these different roles and relationships you play. So it's sort of partially like that's their kind of like unifying thing is um, this perspective taking, and then yeah, it involves potentially, you know, actually just feeling compassion too. So they're okay. kind of like emotionally noticing. So, um, okay. It's not, yeah, it's not, it's, it's sort of like, uh, if you're just thinking in terms of like, let's just have a theory where we've got these virtues. That's, I think you could just kind of add it in, but you just don't really find it in these Western approaches. And so once you see it, you're like, oh, well, it seems natural we could combine these two things. Uh, so why not do that? Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you also mentioned that uh, Western theorizing doesn't 
capture interpersonal reciprocity. I wasn't really mm-hmm. sure what you meant by that. What, is, what are you referring right. to there? Well, so this is definitely contentious, but um, so there's this philosopher that I think has really kind of driven this home named Steve Darwall, who's at Yale, and he's got this book, The Second Personal Standpoint. And hmm. one thing he thinks is that um, what characterizes modern moral thinking that we talked about in a previous podcast is sort of arose during uh, the Enlightenment, roughly. Um, was a concern for that morality is centrally about treating other people in a way that you could justify to them or that you could um, you could expect them to, uh, if you could spell out the reasons why you're doing what you're doing, you could ex- you, you expect those that other person um, would accept that you are doing something that's legit. You're treating them in a way that's legitimate and justifiable. Okay. And so that idea is, is embedded in Kant's uh, theory too. Um, and so it's this kind of idea, all human beings have a rational uh, dignity. They have a, you know, we're different from other animals because we're rational. And so the way you respond well to other people, human beings who have this special rationality, is by respecting the rationality. And so a big way you do that is when you act, you have impact on them, you care about whether you could justify to them what you're doing. That's sort of the way you respect their rationality. Um, And so that idea that morality is centrally about making sure what you're doing is sort of justifiable to other people and that ideally, if they're treating you morally, then you're in these relationships with them where you can justify uh, what you're doing to them, they can justify what they're doing to you, and you're both doing that because you respect each other's dignity as rational agents. Um, that's this kind of very modernist, sort of Kant-focused idea of what morality is all about. Um, and that idea of sort of we morality is about respecting each other as individual beings with individual points of view and justifying stuff to each other. And that's the way we kind of like morally value each other or treat each other morally. That idea is not in uh, Aristotle or Hume. So they don't. uh, And so like, if you look at Aristotle, he doesn't really, that's not a part of kind of what he thinks of as central to ethics. Um, and so that some way people, the way some people put this, if they've, they've said uh, this kind of idea of interpersonal reciprocity, it's connected to this idea of justice that like you find in Kohlberg. Um, and that's uh, not in Aristotle. And so Aristotle's account of justice is totally defective because it doesn't involve this. Um, and so contemporary Aristotle inspired ethics people, to some extent, what they're doing is they're trying to graft this stuff onto Aristotle's theory. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if does that help at all? I don't know if that's clear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and could, so could you say more about like how this is, um, cause we, how, how that's kind of baked into Confucianism mm-hmm. in the first place? Right. Yeah, well, and so that's what I find. One of the things I find interesting about uh, Confucianism is that when you look at 
uh, the role that the golden rule plays in Confucianism and the, this idea of um, you should, in order to fulfill your roles well, one of the main things is sort of you're trying to act in ways that will, that will just, or will sort of merit good responses from the other people. So yeah. like you should be uh, like, I mean, it's still a very like misogynistic uh, tradition, I should say, you know, it's not, but, but it'd be like, well, you're a good husband should treat his wife in ways that she wouldn't have any reason to lament. And a good <laughs> son uh, will act in ways that won't make his parents, uh, you know, regret they had him. I don't know. It's extreme, but so there's this, and so that's, there's this focus on, being morally good at fulfilling these roles and it involves acting in ways that will kind of warrant good responses. And so then the golden rule is partially you're trying to, I think, sort of access or is the way I'm acting going to, uh, what kind of response does it, should it, would it kind of the person reasonably have? Um, so the whole kind of ethical way of, the way they recommend thinking about ethics is tied to this focus on How's it going to, how's what you're doing going to impact other people? And then how could they reasonably respond? So it's, so it's got this sort of similar focus on, um, to be morally oriented is to focus on kind of how other people who you're affecting, how, how, how should they, you know, are you kind of like acting in ways they should be glad you're doing that? Um, so it's not, it doesn't have the emphasis on, rational justification but it's, it's it has this um yeah similar structure so that's that's my thought is that um it's it's in that way sort of more similar to say someone like Kant than um Aristotle and humor yeah as you're talking it reminds me of um I, I just recently recorded a podcast with Roy Baumeister and um I don't know if you're familiar with um, his his um, work with like self-awareness and things like that. But anyway, in the podcast, he was talking about how he had, he at the time when psychology was sort of obsessed with, with self-esteem and he was moving in more of the self-regulation direction, he realized that it just seemed like self-regulation was less about some uh, achieving some desired internal psychic state and seem to be more about um, kind of meeting this desired state of how others would view you. <laughs> so I'm, oh, I'm putting it a lot yeah. less articulately than he is, but um, yeah. it kind of echoes what you're saying here. I think that, mm -hmm. that morality and, he also, you know, has Roy Baumeister does a lot of work with um, self-control. Is, is philosophy mm -hmm. familiar mm -hmm. with any of that line of stuff in psychology? I would say I am, but I would be an anomaly. Okay. Uh, I mean, so, okay. and there are, I mean, one thing that's sprouted up recently is certain philosophers get interested in knowing more about empirical psychology. Um, yeah. So there's a woman, Lorraine Besser-Jones at Middlebury, right, who's done stuff with self-regulation theory, but it's not... Yeah, it's not, uh, I would say generally philosophers are not trained to be aware of 
almost anything that's going on in psychology, which isn't, right, not, right. I don't think it's a good state well, of affairs, but they're just so busy doing like philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. Um, I don't think psychologists are very aware of what's going on in philosophy, generally speaking. Um, right. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting. And also the, 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 the next podcast that's going to be released was with um, Tej Rai on relationship regulation theory, which was the, ah. like the basic idea. Have you heard of this? Either uh, it's, it's, uh. The basic idea is that our moral motivations are geared towards maintaining certain types of relationship structures that are common mm. patterns across the globe. And anyway, mm -hmm. really interesting stuff. And mm. it's just, it, it seems like, I think psychologists at least and, and philosophers probably all along have appreciated that, um, that morality needs to be thought of like very relationally as opposed to abstractly. And mm -hmm. it seems like, yeah, Confucianism with a focus on sort of these good role fulfillment and ritual and concern with like whether or not we can justify what we're doing from the perspective of the other person kind of captures that mm -hmm. a little bit better. So. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Um, yeah. I'll have to check out that. That sounds super interesting. So I'm gonna have to check out that. Uh, I always learn love learning about new psychology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fun stuff. Um, yeah. Okay. So tell me more. So what's, what's next then? Like what are some of the other perks of Confucianism? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, so for me, um, you know, one question you get into from a more philosophic point of view is, uh, you know, what's the, what's the correct morality? So, I mean, I sort of feel like listening to some of your other podcasts, I mean, especially listening to the people who work on moral foundations and some of the, I guess, Schwegler is how you say his name. And so some of these earlier other traditions that arose after Kohlberg, uh, they sound sort of relativistic uh, to me. And then, you know, I noticed like people who work on moral foundations, sometimes they say like, well, we're not making normative judgments. We're just describing yeah, yeah. like these. So you start to adopt what I think of as sort of like a, almost like a psychological version of cultural anthropology or something. You're, you're like, okay, there are these different moral systems and foundations <laughs> and, you know, some people care about some and some care about another. And, uh, as a philosopher, I'm like, well, that's all really interesting and I want to read that. But like, I'm also wondering this question, you know, what's the right way to think about morality? And, uh, you know, it's sort of connected to what you said about, uh, you know, for the Confucians, how do we know, for example, what social norms are good or bad? Yeah. Um, and uh, so for me, uh, I think that another interesting thing about Confucianism is that it gives you... Uh, an interesting way to think about um, why you might think uh, one sort of ethical form of ethical development is better than others. Um, and so that's one thing I sort of have noticed about psychology. Like when you read Kohlberg and then you read Carol Gilligan, they both clearly had these very strong views about people going up their stages up to this really demanding highest stage they called post-conventional morality, it was like, you are getting morally better. Yeah, and yeah. one thing I've noticed is psychologists since then, they seem very wary about uh, positing a moral Absolutely. ideal. So, Absolutely. You know, I, and there are all these other reasons they didn't, you know, they disagree with Kohlberg and stuff, but it's like, so, and so even the people who aren't in the moral foundations, they're not making it sound like 
they're kind of relativists in a way. Uh, even the people who don't, they're like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. But they still are not positing like an end state that much, you know, for the most part. Um, and so for me, uh, I think Confucianism offers an interesting picture of the moral uh, ideal. And then as a philosopher, you know, you, get, you want to know how are you going to justify this is the best moral ideal. Um, and uh, then there are questions about why we should want to be, become more moral. So uh, if we have like the true theory of moral psychological development, uh, that's great. But then as an individual, you might decide, well, it's, you know, I don't really want to become more moral because <laughs> uh, it's going to maybe come at uh, personal cost or something. Right. So for me, Confucianism um, is interesting for those reasons. And so I guess one thing is that uh, I sort of wish psychologists would be a little bit more bold about trying to tease out either are they denying that they need to figure out whether there's a moral ideal um or uh if they think there is a moral ideal you know how are they gonna defend that <laughs> um but those are those kind of are getting into philosophy so anyway um but so yeah. for me confucianism <laughs> is appealing because it it's a way of showing that maybe by if you become more confucian the way the more moral the way the Confucians understand that, that's going to come with uh, kind of make it likely that you're going to be in sort of your own well-being might go up, but more importantly, um, the, the health of all the relationships you're in with other people are going to go up. And so they're sort of, they're, they're giving you a picture of moral development. The trajectory of it is towards being someone who's going to be uh, kind of relationally doing well. Like they're going to have lots of good relationships. They're going to benefit uh, the people around them and help the other people around them become more ethical too. Mm -hmm. And so to me, um, that makes it a really appealing ideal. Um, and I think that ideal looks like something you might be able to get more intercultural agreement on. So mm -hmm. like not everybody agrees that justice is as important as a lot of, you know, people in our, in Western, like the United States do. And that's one thing you see with the foundation work, um, or at least certain parts of the United States. Uh, and other people put honor or something really a lot, a lot higher. And uh, one thing I think it's interesting about the stuff that Confucians are picking out as being really important for moral development, it looks like something that has a good shot of being accepted as really important cross-culturally. So being a good parent, uh, being a good worker uh, who treats underlings and peers you're competing with in a, in a more in an ethically good way, like fulfilling these roles, uh, my thought is there's, you might be able to find a set of roles that are like for certain types of develop, stages of development in social structures, you know, they might be kind of more universal. So that's one thing I like about it is it sort of, uh, but it sounds like that last the person you were talking about that's doing this relational yeah. approach, it's sounding kind of similar to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of sound similar. But yeah, I think that's a good point about this, the, the, uh, the special obligations and things that you have in certain types of relationships. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. The, the one challenge, though, is like, since interviewing Richard Schwader, I've also been trying to kind of backtrack 
backtrack and get a little bit more familiar with some of his other work as well. And Ooh. I think that like one, one of his papers that was, um, in, that I think was really insightful and I forget what the name was now, but, but anyway, he was talking about how like there are different ways to try to compare um, people or cultures. And so one of them might be like universal trying to find things that every culture has in common. And then one of those might be uh, relativistic, like they're, they're all different, but they're just as good as one another. And then another one is sort of this evolutionary approach of like, well, this is just more advanced. And, and so this culture is more advanced in some way than this culture. And like each of these approaches have pros and cons to them. But the universal one I thought was interesting because it's a challenge. Um, he had pointed out that when we're trying to talk about cross-cultural universals, often it requires us to become abstract. And so like, like for instance, the, the idea of like being a good um, family member or being a good father or mother or something like that. Well, then the challenge is if we want to universalize that, we have to ignore the fact that who gets categorized as a child um, is different culture to culture, that these obligations aren't just natural. Like often, you know, your daughter will marry out of the family and then all of a sudden, like she's not your daughter anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And in another culture, that would be potentially morally appalling. And so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's interesting to think about. I think that people do generally agree that there are these certain types of roles we want to fulfill well, but mm -hmm. trying to make those roles concrete, it seems like something is lost along the way still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, I mean, one thought is, uh, I think it's just partially, I mean, I have sort of these like different research programs I work on. And so when I'm thinking of doing the, the kind of moral theory philosophy one, mm -hmm. um, part of what I think is interesting is trying to uh, make sense of what I think of as the best way to be uh, morally or ethically and ideally looking for something that is more universal. And partially that's uh, connected to the idea of you're trying to get it right. And it's also just an inertia thing of what philosophers have focused on. Um, yeah. So there are some philosophers like this guy, David Wong at Duke, who's super interesting. And he defends this really sophisticated form of moral relativism where there's sort of like a central core of morality that you could expect to be universal. But then beyond that, there's a lot of relativity about the way I think about it is it's kind of like you could weight different moral foundations in different ways, even if you thought everybody has to include them all or something. And so, mm. um, but, but relativism and philosophy and moral philosophy, it's sort of a little bit of an outlier in, in the sense that I think most people who get into moral philosophy and the tradition is sort of working to try to find some universal element. And part of what that involves is exactly what you're saying. Um, so a good example would be, not everyone who is gonna be like this, but like this guy, uh, Tim Scanlon, who's now well, relatively well known through The Good Place. He's a super uh, amazing, great moral philosopher, really influential at Harvard. And his theory is kind of, is this Kant-inspired theory um, that I think is sort of 
close to some extent what I think Confucianism says, but, you know, kind of interesting to compare. Mm-hmm. He kind of accepts what you said. So he's, his idea is he wants to understand when you think something's morally wrong, what is moral wrongness? Uh, why do we think moral, something being morally right or wrong is so important? And are we right to sort of think it's, it should kind of really drive what we do? Um, mm-hmm. So he's interested in those questions. And then if you start looking at his theory, um, it'll turn out what things are right or wrong are going to depend on culturally variant facts. For example, maybe like local ideals about uh, parenting or whatever else. So um, I think that's right that a lot of philosophers who are trying to come up with a universal theory, they're sort of, uh, or at least, you know, there's one prominent example, sort of, being okay with the idea that it is a relatively abstract kind of common thread and it's okay to focus on that because then we're more interested in these questions of sort of why be moral and why are moral reasons so important and how do we know we've got, we're picking out the right thing. Um, But you're right. Then it could be sort of, you want, you're like, well, but then there's all this cultural variation. Um, so I, no, I think you're picking up like that's probably a feature of a lot of philosophic moral theorizing is it becomes abstract in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, and I think it's interesting like that in and of itself, the fact that universalism is what it, it, it seems to have a draw that people can't deny. Like everybody kind of wants mm-hmm. to figure out where the common moral ground is, um, especially like when I was talking to you about some of the big tech kind of algorithmic fairness type stuff where we're looking at these companies that are like really struggling to try to figure out what universals exist. So at least there's some sort of common ground to not get in big trouble over, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think it makes sense. And I think just the fact that people tend to naturally idealize universal principle is telling. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I mean, it's interesting because if you look back, like, you're like, in a way, Alistair McIntyre, and there's this other really influential philosopher, Bernard Williams, um, who gets listed as like the most influential best philosopher when people do polls in ethics. And <laughs> he was very critical of uh, this desire to search for some kind of universal theory. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, in, and in a certain way, uh, McIntyre thinks uh, contemporary attempts to do that in philosophy are wrongheaded. But I think it's a weird thing where, like, if you, there are some of the most famous names in moral philosophy in the last hundred years, but it's sort of like nobody really thinks they, they think they were too pessimistic or something. Interesting. Um, to some extent. And so, it, but it's, you know, who knows? But, um, but, it, but I think, yeah, I, that you're right that. Um, if you search for this universal thing, uh, maybe it makes sense that philosophers spend more of their time doing that and the, um, the psychologists. Well, it sounds like I was wrong, though. That. It sounds like a lot of, sounds like a lot of big thinkers don't think that very many people, well, or I mean, I guess they are critiquing because they feel like they're doing that. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, another thing you brought up that I think is really interesting is that, like, how do you, what kind of universality are you looking for? It could be tied to who's your audience? Uh, And so, like you said, you know, I think you could be like, look, we're trying to come up with a true moral theory for people who are living in modernized 
societies where mm-hmm. the sociologists sociologists call individualization have taken place, and uh, maybe where there is a certain degree of a certain level of quality of the political system, and you know we might be trying to develop a moral theory only for a certain group of people, and sometimes people wed that story to a story about how. Uh, those societies are more advanced and better. So then, you know, but that's obviously tied to worries about progressivism <laughs> yeah. and imperialism. It's a whole can of worms. But I actually think that there's something to, uh, like I like this movement in psychology, for example, of looking at other cultures. And, and there's a little bit of it going on in philosophy. But um, there's also a question of like, if we're writing all these books and we're talking about this and we're trying to figure out how this is going to feed into our collective thinking and our policies, um, you know, maybe we should be okay with, we're just creating, we're just trying to figure out the best theory for people who are in cultures that have a certain form and it's not going to apply to all of them. Yeah. Um, So uh, like, I think to a certain extent, that's maybe how someone kind of like Habermas and there's a way like that sort of when John Rawls was doing political philosophy, he was sort of trying to create a theory that would speak to and be accepted by people only in a certain type of culture and political context. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to go is to sort of try to make intelligent distinctions about different types of societies and uh, try to come up with a theory that's universally true for like a whole group, you know, that is sort of like a lot of important people care about morality in it. So I don't, I mean, do you think that, so just we're running up against time here and I kind of want to tie back into Confucianism before we go. Mm -hmm. Um, Like where does Confucianism fall on this? Does it claim to be universal? Yeah, no, I mean, so for the most part, the Confucian tradition, the thinkers definitely, at least uh, as far as I can tell, they think they're getting at the the universal truths about, uh, what, how to be an ethical person and be also to, you know, potentially set up a, a political structure and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one challenge about the, the, the tradition of Confucianism over time is to try to figure out maybe the, maybe the theory needs to be seriously updated uh, in the light of sociological changes, uh, but also, you know, can it, can it lead us to give an argument in favor of democracy, for example? And mm-hmm. So there's a whole tradition of what they call new Confucians in Taiwan uh, in particular that have argued in favor of this. And so there are people like Steve Engel at Wesleyan uh, has written books on this and various people that are really interested in, you know, even though I like things about Confucianism, I think might have things to offer that you won't find in Aristotle, uh, for example. I think it needs to be updated in the same way Aristotle would, would need to be. Um, and I think... Uh, that's probably most people, yeah, everybody, everybody to some extent people tend to agree with that, but they still uh, do sort of, the, the tradition looks like it's definitely claiming it's this universal true view. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what which are kind of, the philosophers, so, yeah. <laughs> what are some of the ways that uh, new Confucianism is like trying to update the theory? Well, uh, I mean, one big one is that people have tried to uh, explain how Confucianism properly developed 
gives a justification for favoring democracy over political other political systems and for including some kind of strong respect for people's autonomy roughly hmm. um and so there's this couple of thinkers in in uh you know in the last couple hundred years uh who that's they were partially they did that by they were studied in germany and they are interested in kind of trying to compare kant with various confucians and so that's one thing they want to like in the early confucian text you don't get a lot of idea of you know universal respect for everybody regardless of their gender <laughs> you know and and yeah. generally there's not a kind of push for example for respecting people's privacy so if you think of things where you're like, uh, you're an autonomous agent, you're grown up, your parents aren't in charge anymore, you get to chart your own life. Um, a lot of our kind of individualistic rights are connected to that idea. And so I think that's when we think about these new Confucians, they're trying to sort of, to some extent, accommodate some of those values. Um, and that's connected to valuing democracy. Um, and so they're trying to sort of show how you can get support for a lot of those ideas, maybe in a slightly different form, coming out of Confucianism. Interesting. And yeah. So like Charles Taylor and other people have thought that's one way you could get an agreed upon account of human rights is that you wouldn't have like one moral theory that justifies it, but you could show that a list of rights could be justified by a bunch of different independent traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one way to think uh, these new Confucians are trying to get closer to stuff that maybe we would, a lot of Westerners, uh, like Amer stuff on the American Bill of Rights or something, you know, so it's, they're, they're trying to get some of that, maybe not all of it. I mean, it's definitely not, uh, but trying to get it sort of locally from the inside of their tradition. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, we're yeah. out of time. Um, Brad, cool. thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Learned a lot. Um, it definitely makes me want to go and learn more about Confucianism and start to implement that more into my thinking. So anyway, you've given me cool. a lot to think about. So thanks so much. Thanks. Well, me too. I've definitely learned about a whole nother thing. I have to go read in psychology, which is always <laughs> so good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kynes Whiter and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.